Welcome to Q&A Selling Online with answers to questions about creating an online empire, promoting products, or building a brand. Your host, private label and e-commerce entrepreneur, Quinn Amorm. Welcome back to the show, my friends. Today we have with us a serial entrepreneur with two decades of building businesses by creating great products and great marketing. An early pioneer in computerized trading, he built one of the earliest high-frequency trading systems for S&P 500. Then when the pay-per-click marketing platforms burst on the scene, he translated his work into massively successful automated systems for Google, then Facebook, later Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of that. With us today, we have Maceo Jordan. How's it going, Maceo? Yeah, it's going great. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, nice to have you too. So before we start, let me tell you something. We, you have a fantastic voice for podcasting and radio. <laughs> Anybody ever tell you that? You know, it, yes, they have. And unfortunately now, what I'm probably going to do is give you like my deep radio voice and I'll <laughs> be relaxed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah no, funny no. story. In the, so in the intervening years between um, hedge fund world and e-commerce, I was doing an hour of video every day. Um, and so I've been doing video online since 2005. I joke around about it. It was so early and it was so bad that Microsoft actually had the best uh, video player platform available. <laughs> sort of an insider joke. Microsoft doesn't do much right. But for some reason, their Windows Media Player was just stellar. It dates me a little bit, that and the gray beard. <laughs> yeah, that's funny that I love that you said that because I agree. Uh, Microsoft doesn't do much right. <laughs> right. But, uh, yeah, I remember that back then. Uh. So tell me, how did all of this get started? How did you get involved in, like, what was your first business? Tell me, how did it all get started? Oh, man, I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid. And I, th this will tie into more of an overarching philosophy of, like, how do we know things? And is it luck? Is it this or is it that? Um, so at a very early age, I came to the realization that if I found the buyer's then everything else would take care of itself. And if you talk to a venture capitalist today, uh, if they're a successful one, they're going to be mostly concerned with, you know, are the founders selling? Are they getting customers? You know, do these customers have a, a high, enough, uh, high enough lifetime value to support the company? Um, now, I'm not saying as an eight-year-old, I knew all of that. Um, but at the time, we lived in a townhouse community. We were very broke growing up. Uh, my mom worked three jobs to keep us, keep us out of the ghetto. Um, so I was always looking for more money because she wasn't exactly forking it over for what I wanted. And some of the ladies in the townhouse community, they liked birds. Uh, I saw one of them had a feeder and we had a school project at the time. And I thought, you know what, if I rolled this little thing in some peanut butter and then, you know, rolled that in some bird seed, I could maybe sell it to these ladies so that, you know, they could sit on their porch and watch the birds. And sure enough, it worked, you know, because they were little old ladies, they were referring like crazy. So, I mean, I had this great little business, uh, it accidentally turned into, uh, you know, what we would call recurring revenue, because of course the peanut butter would wear out and they didn't want to get it down and all that. As an eight-year-old though, I didn't, I didn't have high enough aspirations. So pretty soon it got to be work. It got to be a real business. Uh, so I was like, ah, oh, you know, I think I'm going to go do something else <laughs> instead <laughs> of servicing my growing customer base. But yeah, eight years old, I had my first employee, probably nine or 10. I was delivering newspapers uh, and I was small enough that the Sunday papers uh, were a little bit too hard for me to manage. Uh, so JR, I don't know if he, maybe he's going to see this. Thank you, JR. Uh, but I'd have to wake him up at four o'clock in the morning on Sundays to get the papers. You'd have to put them together and, uh, you know, put rubber bands on them and then go deliver them. Yeah. So very early age, I've been an entrepreneur. Wow, man. Oh, man. So tell me then, let's jump over to 2005. Is that when you got this $25,000 loan? <laughs> tell me, if that's the story, tell me, how does somebody turn $25,000 negative, because it's a loan, yep. into uh, $25 million or $26 million in your case? Yeah, the, the real story is first you have to turn the $25,000 loan into $5,000, because that's mm. what I did. Um, but there's some, it's meaningful to say that, right? So you've got to test. But I would say if you want to ditch a lot of the, um, we'll call it false starts and a lot of the losing money, it's focusing on the trend. And what's funny about it is, you know, I'd been a trader, uh, you know, I'd, I understood what trends were, I capitalized on them, but for some reason, I didn't fully believe that it was going to work in the business world. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take this 25000 and I'm going to 
try different things. In fact, at one point I was selling a course online on, on sewing. Uh, my mom, she actually recently passed. Uh, she was an heirloom seamstress and, you know, knew a lot about sewing. So I thought, okay, I'll sell some products. I'll interview her. And, uh, you know, back, it was sort of in the beginning days of e-commerce and, and, uh, digital products. And then I, I finally realized, you know, I've been in the financial industry forever. I went to the library and uh, there's something called an SRDS. And the SRDS is still available. It's got uh, mailing lists and it will tell you how big the list is, what people bought, um, you know, how many people had bought recently called the hotline in kind of direct response speak. And I figured out really quickly that there was a little bit over $2 billion being spent every 90 days across all of, I'll call it financial uh, media, right? So it'd be newsletters and whatnot. Yeah. I said, why am I screwing around with, you know, a, a sewing product? Uh, I launched a product uh, where I was both providing education uh, and some trading services myself, some trading direction, we'll call it. And, uh, you know, kind of the rest is history um, as far as how to how I started. So let's, let's zero in on some of the key points there. Um, first of all, the trend is literally everything in business. I don't care um, how big of an opportunity you want to go after. If you have the right trend it can support that size of business. Now, the mistake people make is they look at someone like Jeff Bezos today, Amazon, and they think that they're just going to go out and start a business that's eventually going to turn into a trillion dollar company. Well, the reality is Amazon is capitalizing on such a large trend that the potential of Amazon was that big. Of course, nobody knew it was that big back then. Yeah. And so some of it unfolds uh, you know, over time kind of as we go. So that's number one is you've got to focus on a trend. And once I turned that part of my brain back on, I looked around the financial markets. I saw that Forex trading was coming out of the institutional world where I lived into the retail marketplace. Uh, and so I launched a retail Forex product. And really the, the trend is what, what made that company grow so fast. Uh, a, a good modern version of that would be Bitcoin. You know, everybody wants to talk about, uh, you know, in fact, I know one of the large direct response companies that had probably the biggest Bitcoin promotion. And everybody in the company is, you know, saying how genius the copywriters are and how genius the company is. Look, you are involved in a product that literally had most of the world's financial market focused on it. Yeah. It didn't matter what you were doing. You could have thrown something into the Bitcoin market and you would have made 10, 15 grand a month. Um, I actually, uh, I stayed out of it more for moral reasons than anything else, but that's, that's a modern day version of it. Uh, you know, had I got involved in Bitcoin, I could have very easily uh, doubled what I did uh, with that Forex business. Now, the, that business morphed over time. The big mistake that I made there uh, was as it was growing, um, I attempted to change it into something that it wasn't. So we tr I tried to morph it into a technology company. Because we were dealing with a lot of cutting edge stuff at the time, YouTube wasn't even really around. Uh, it got to be later on. Uh, AWS, so Amazon Web Service was brand new. Uh, there were a ton of competitors that everybody, of course, has forgotten about. We were using Jungle Disk at the time. Um, Dropbox was just a you know little thing out there in the marketplace. Um, and so I, I thought I could make a platform that would support e-commerce. So it was going to be video and email and integrating systems, and then applying some of these predictive algorithms. And it was just way too early. So big lesson number two is there's, you've not only got to have a trend, but your customer needs to have a problem. And that's my big mistake. Yeah, people were using video, but it wasn't like in 2009 and 10, they had to have video. Um, like today, you have to have video. Um, people wanted the, the um, integration with email and analytics, but they didn't have to have it. And that was the big thing. Uh, the, in a marketing parlance in technology, they would say, the customer has to have a bleeding from the neck problem. And they just didn't have it. So I spent $8 million of my own money, which again, that's like mistake number three, go get some investors if you're going to do something like that. And we came to market and nobody wanted to buy it. Um, you know, so I, you, we can get into burn rate and other things like that, but you know, it was really um, the, the kind of stacking on, stacking on those mistakes and the timing and forgetting that the trend and the customer are the two things that, are really required to make something big, uh, you know, is why that business exit actually happened, which I know you didn't ask, but uh, I wanted to, you know, kind of give you the full arc of the story and then we can zero in on any one part. That's probably what hurts the most is when you have an idea 
you invest your own money, and then you realize that years later, that same idea would have worked and it probably worked for oh. somebody else, but you're too early. That's what's yep. even, even more frustrating is being too early. Oh, Unfortunately, man. that's the story of my life. Um, partially, well, I shouldn't say life. It, the reason why I run into it so often is because of uh, my training as a trader. Right? So as a trader, you've got to kind of look forward a bit. You have to try and predict the future. And in trading, I mean, it's not really a big deal if you're a little bit early. You know, So say you bought something at 10, it goes down to eight. As long as that's within your risk tolerance, you don't really care. But in business, it's like if, if you do that, that, that same dance, you're spending $8 million and then you need $400,000 a month to keep it alive for four years for the market to catch up. You know, that, that doesn't work out so well. So uh, it does if you've got deep pockets. Uh, you know, we, for example, Amazon. Amazon didn't make money for a long time, specifically because they were building something for the future. And, you know, now they're, they're reaping the reward. But it takes that outside investment to make that work, which is why I said earlier, get an investor and make sure that you know, you're talking with them about the long-term vision and realistically looking at the market and seeing if it's if the market's still going to where you think it's going to go. You know, we like to use cliches uh, like Gretzky says, you know, skate to where the puck is going, which sounds great from the stage. Yeah. But dude, you can lose a fortune trying to execute on that in the business marketplace. Whereas, you know, the risk in a hockey game is what? You miss the puck, you miss the play. It's like you got 15 more games. And there's only so much rink where the puck can go. Absolutely. <laughs> the rules yeah. are constrained. So um, I like to... I like to call myself, uh, you know, sort of a, a pragmatic, realistic optimist. As long as you know the rules of the game, yes, just about anything is possible. But I don't ascribe to the, the belief of, you know, completely unlimited opportunity and, uh, you know, that everything can, can keep growing to the sky. It's just sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> uh, what about the time where you have an idea and you know the trend is favorable to you? Uh, and now you're going to look for these investors because you trust your instinct and you know it's going to go there. Now, how do you relay that to that investor? Oh man, that's that's the simple part. That's where you know you put on your big boy pants, your big girl pants, and you just tell them. Uh, the one thing that I've learned dealing with investors, I actually learned this in the army. Uh, my first promotion board in the army, they told me. Uh, actually, they called me Jordan, not Maceo, but. Uh, they said, as long as you sound confident, it really doesn't matter what the answers are. So when I heard him say that, I was like, well, what the heck am I studying for? So I literally stopped studying. I I maybe knew 20% of the answers, but when I gave him an answer, there was conviction, there was confidence, and I said it like it was the only answer. In fact, I, I pulled it off so well that one of the um, one of the first sergeants that was in there, or, or maybe he was uh, you know just an E8, anyway... Uh, he actually said, you know, Jordan, you had me so convinced I had to go look it up. <laughs> and so they passed me. They're like, that's leadership. For someone who literally doesn't know what he's doing, can convey that much confidence. The, the reality is you're going to figure it out. And so the, the bottom line is you've got to be confident. And however you get that confidence, whether it's research, whether it's working, interviewing people or all of it, when you're talking to an investor, they just want to know that you know what you're doing. And that doesn't mean uh, you know, I'm just going to pick something off of my desk. So I've got this little piece of metal. It doesn't mean that I know exactly how many of these little things are on there and how to make it. It's that I know given enough time, I can find the people to make that thing. Yeah. Because a, a true investor is going to know that you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Nobody knew COVID was going to pop up. I had a $6 million transaction that got scuttled because of COVID. And it, we were literally three days from the closing table it was in the healthcare industry in the state of Ohio. Ohio shut down and we're literally looking. I'm on a Zoom call with the sellers saying, well, I guess we'll come back in three months. Well, it turned out they actually went out of business in the meantime. So it was probably a good thing that COVID hit. But you just, you don't know. And it's not to say that you have to anticipate a, a black swan event on you know every turn, but your investor is not going to want you to know everything. They want you to be the leader. They want you to be the defining vision. They want you to be the one uh, that's directing where the company goes and really not motivating people, but bringing people along and providing an environment where everyone can excel. And yes, you are going to need some, some expertise, but if you talk to a VC, a venture capitalist, especially if you get a few drinks into them, 
you'll find out that, you know, a lot of it is much subtler than that. You know, they're definitely looking for people that have that kind of feeling of capability rather than somebody um, like it, I'll, I'll use another analogy. So in Goodwill Hunting, there's this a part of the movie where Robin Williams is like has this crisis, like, oh, my gosh, this kid, he's so smart in my life and I'm wasting my life. And I went to MIT and I'm at this community college and he wakes up the next day and he walks in completely calm. You can see Robin was such a great actor. You could see he was totally transformed. And the punchline of it was, he said, you know what? I woke up today and realized you read all this in a book somewhere. And so here was, you know, Goodwill Hunting, talking like he knew everything, but all he knew was out of a book. So the, I would say the, the second piece of it is, um, the reason why I was able to pull that off in the military was because I'd had practical experience. And the, the, the last piece I'll put in on this is you cannot, you'll, you'll pardon my, my French, you cannot bullshit an investor. They're, they're going to pick up either on it subtly or uh, consciously that you're just book smart. And that, that's so prevalent today because information is just clickety clicky. You, know, you don't have to go to the library like back when I was young. I mean, we had the Dewey Decimal System for crying out loud. So just because you've, you've looked something up on Google or you, know, you can cite 47 studies does not mean that you can convince an investor to give you money. So the, the last piece of that would be always add on practical experience to that. And it doesn't have to be some big thing. Investors don't need you to have Google on your resume. You know, if you worked for, you know, Joe's Plumbing down the street and you say, yeah, I was working with Joe's Plumbing and, you know, say you have a technology company and you say, well, you know, Joe was having a problem getting customers. So, you know, we dug in and we figured it out and we built this automated system and it was really cool and talked to other plumbers and they liked it. And pretty soon we were selling that. That's what an investor wants to hear. Not, oh, well, you know, I've, I've read these 57 books or something like that or gone to, you know, 12 conferences and you should invest in me. So, Maceo, tell me something. Now, jumping over to 2017, 18, talking about like how to not predict the future, but the trends and knowing what's going to happen. Two years before COVID, you launched like what could be the future of the healthcare system uh, so you could do it from home. Yep. Uh, now, is this like 90% luck or have you... Are you following some sort of trend or how do you get to this two years before it's actually needed like this much? Yeah, well, so COVID definitely accelerated that. Um, and we would see this all the time in, in trading and in the markets. You, know, you might be in a position, you're making money, and then, uh, you know, like the, the book, a black swan event happens and the market moves in your direction. And that, you know, let's call it, it's luck. You know, you're in the right place at the right time. You can... You can make those events more likely to happen. Really, I would, if I was going to be flip about it, I'd, I'd say just pay attention. But let's, let's put some meat around this. First of all, I'll go back to practical experience, right? So you need to understand what matters and what doesn't. So when I'm hiring somebody now, you know, especially after 40, the reason why I only hire people with experience is because they've made mistakes. They know better what's more likely to work. Right. And when you're young, you, you just don't care, man. I mean, it's just that's kind of a defining trait of a young person. So for somebody who's younger, it would be have the self-awareness to real, realize that you don't know. And you need to get closer to what are the elements that I can put in place that'll have a not ensure success like a guarantee, but ensure success like we're taking things off the table that can get in our way. Um, and so that's really simple. You need to have a really big market. Uh, healthcare, it's a big market. Everybody knows it's a big market. Um, then you need some kind of change, right? So the defining uh, factor in a trend, if you were looking at a stock chart, would be uh, what I coined a radical change. Um, so if you see price plunging down really fast, that's actually a sign of an opportunity to buy. Most retail tr traders don't think of it that way. Uh, so sometimes if you see a marketplace that has a big shock, uh, where a lot of companies are going out of business, that could definitely be it. And then, of course, you have the other side where you have a, a radical change to the upside. That could be an indication that a lot of people are getting into that market. And so you need to start paying attention to it. Healthcare, obviously, because it's healthcare, doesn't really apply. But there are plenty of healthcare businesses that are going out of business even right now. There are healthcare companies that are filing for bankruptcy and failing. So it, it goes right back to the customer. Who are you servicing? 
And so that leads me to, I think I'm on pillar number three, would be who's your customer? What's their average order value? What's their lifetime value? Uh, and so I'm, when I bring that model into healthcare, that points to servicing the baby boomers. Uh, you're talking about the generation with you know, some of the greatest disposable wealth, uh, whether it's equity in their home or cash in the bank. Uh, they have a lot of health problems. And more importantly, the health problems are not getting solved. Uh, so eh, it was really back in 1993 or 94, uh, Medicare started to look into uh, fixing some of the problems that they had. Why it took them so long, I don't know. But fast forward you know, to around 2013, 2014, uh, this thing called value-based care became the buzzword. But it was basically Medicare saying, okay, we've been throwing money at healthcare forever. Right. Um, and so basically the way it would work, if, if you were on Medicare, you'd go into the hospital, and let's say they said, all right, you've got a bad hip. They would give you a code. That code literally unlocked this big bucket of money. Medicare would dump that on the hospital and then say, okay, fix the hip. Well, they weren't fixing the hip. People were coming back with infections, ER visits, another hip replacement. And so they finally said, okay, giving people all this money isn't working. To me as an entrepreneur, it's like, duh. Like, <laughs> Imagine you're building a house and before the contractor gets working, you give him all the money. Now, anybody that's built a house instantly is laughing saying, yeah, you would never do that. Not necessarily because the contractor's a scumbag, but because they're human. They're going to have all that money in their pocket. They're going to go spend it, right? They're going to spend it on stuff that's not your house. That's healthcare. So these hospitals got all this money and they figured, well, you know what? Let's get another MRI machine and let's get this and that. So they found, they've built this system that is so cumbersome, not because they needed it, but because Medicare's solution was to dump a bucket, a bucket of money on them. So enter value-based care. Value-based care is such a radical change in healthcare that most hospital administrators don't really like to talk about it. Uh, but it's basically telling the medical system, you're not doing your job, you're not efficient, and we want better outcomes for people. I mean, we have to remember, this, these are our moms and dads. I mean, my mom just went through this horrendous experience, uh, and even me being on the inside of it had a difficult time stopping it. And so it's definitely broken at a very fundamental level. And so I saw that all of these elements were in place, big market, uh, high lifetime value, high average order value. And those uh, in almost every instance are going to give you the opportunity to, to make a lot of money. Now, the timing wise, it's really pretty simple. Uh, in 2030, we're going to have 100% of the baby boomers over 70. Now, we've been talking about the baby boomers for so long that we kind of for, we've forgotten about them, you know, in, in a collective sense. Uh, obviously, if, we, if you have parents that are still alive, you haven't forgotten about them. Um, but from a business standpoint, most people are like, oh, yeah, the baby boomers, weren't they a thing back in 2000? Well, yeah, they were because that's when they started to retire. But over time, it's going to kind of come to a head in 2030. And so I looked at that date. Um, you know, I saw the changes that were coming through mandated by Medicare. I put all of that together to see, all right, we've got this pressure coming from the outside, which is government, uh, which means the system has a bleeding from the neck problem because the government's going to start taking money out of their pocket which is about as bleeding from the neck as you can get in business. Yeah. Uh, and then when it comes to healthcare, when somebody is, uh, especially over 70, they're definitely starting to think about legacy. They're definitely thinking about dying, just to put it bluntly. And so their bleeding from the neck problem is, you know, I'm, I'm not healthy and I need to get this fixed. I need to get it fixed now. Um, so all of that put together, yeah, I mean, it looks great that I'm two years early, uh, but I like to borrow a, a phrase from a, a very well-known trader, uh, uh, Tudor Jones is his name, John Paul Tudor Jones. He said, you know, yeah, you could say I bought the market at the bottom, but it'd be more accurate to say on my sixth try, I bought the market at the bottom. All right. So I've had, you know, plenty of healthcare startups over the years. It just so happened that this last one was, you know, two years before everything changed. So yes, I'll look like a genius for now, but the reality is to, and I'll say this more for, you know, for the people that are watching this at home. To, to say that it's luck is one way to describe it, but it's also that if you if you take care of your finances, you don't spend all your money on fast cars and fast women, you know, like the old saying goes, mm -hmm. you can survive two, three, four, five, six, seven attempts to, you know, quote unquote, pick the bottom in the marketplace. So that's truly to make it practical. It would be that. Never bet everything uh, unless through experience, you've got everything lined up. But with just the the few you know pillars that I've outlined, you can get pretty close to to 
have a good guess. Now, could everything still fall apart? Yeah, absolutely. I have to tell my investors this all the time. It's like one change in the law and the business could be erased. Um, you know, you get multiple hits with COVID and they do something even stupider than they did the last time with healthcare. Uh, you know, you could see things change radically. So even then, it's it's always best to diversify your risk, get investors in, don't try and create, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar business or a category changing business on your own. I'd rather have 10, 5, 2% of a 50, 60, $70 billion company than 100% of nothing or 100% of, you know, a million, two million, three million. It's just, you know, it's all about scaling. Got it. I like your analogy of the sixth try because it's very, yeah. it's very real. People don't know that. Okay. Maceo was very lucky. He did yeah. this and he lucked out. But yeah, I failed five times before. Yes. This one just happened to be in some ways. I don't know if that is really luck because you made it happen by trying the sixth time. While Lucky is the one that, you know, trips on a rock and finds a business that that comes out of, I mean, that's luck. Now, trying five times and failing and then the sixth at working is, I mean, I don't know if you still call it luck, but it's persistence, uh, persistency and or consistency at the same time. So there's yeah. so much that we're trying to put, let me. Uh, I'll throw some more stories at you. Uh, so early in my trading career, I met somebody. This was in the dot-com run-up, right? So this is, uh, we'll go back in the time machine to 98, 99. And this woman bought something called a LEAP. Now, a LEAP is a long-term option. Now, we don't need to go into all the specifics, but um, you can control a lot of stock for a little bit of money, and you can control that stock for a long period of time. Well, she picked Yahoo!, Yahoo was a big company. I was working with her brother. Her brother liked to think he was a trader. Uh, and he said, ah, you know, you need to buy some Yahoo. Two years later, this is right before everything blew up. Her options exercise, right? So the two, the, the contract was for two years, uh, meaning she could control Yahoo stock for two years. She essentially bought the stock at $20. And when she sold it, it was 200. And she had, I don't know, it was like thousands and thousands of shares. My friend, that's luck, okay? Going into a convenience store and saying, ah, you know, down in Arizona, you know, the Powerball, they call it, I think it's a quick pick. The computer picks the numbers. Mm -hmm. Winning the lottery on a quick pick, that's luck. And so we've, yeah. I think it's helpful, especially for people that are coming up, to define things clearly. And I think it's this weird desire that we have as people, because if I can chalk Maceo's success up to luck, yeah. that means I'm not responsible and I don't have to look around my life. And, you know, if it's, if there's a gap between where you are and where you want to be, you don't have to own that gap. My personal feeling is I'd rather own the gap. I would just like to know as many of the rules in the gap as possible. You know, going back to the, you know, the skating rink analogy. Yes, you can skate to where the puck is going, but you know the puck's going to stop at the wall, right? It's not like it can keep going forever. So there are some rules to this. You know, again, financial literacy is going to be extremely important. Uh, understanding, you know, all the aspects of a trend. No, I shouldn't say all. Understanding enough of the aspects of a trend so that you you can put the odds in your favor. You know, all of those things are where people will look at you and say, man, how would he get so lucky? I mean, I was I was such a consistent trader on one of my advisory newsletters. My guarantee was... In a rolling 30-day period, if my trades, because I gave buy and sell exits, right? It was a whole trade. It wasn't like, oh, like the, the trickery that they use now is they'll say, oh, you should buy Amazon. And then when they report the price, they pick the highest price. Say, well, you could have sold it at this price. Like, well, yeah, but you didn't say to sell it there. Yeah. You know, just because sometime during your holding period, it was at that price does not mean you said sell Uh, and so very accountable kind of newsletter. I had absolutely, I had zero refunds, which meant there was, there was no rolling 30 day period where I lost money. And it's because of all of these different rules. So again, when I, when I algorithmatized business, it was based on all of that experience. And you can, you can do that in business. You can set up an algorithm for lack of a better term so that you reduce your risk to the point where, yeah, you have an idea. It doesn't work, but you're not wrecked. Uh, you have an idea that works. Maybe it's a, a big winner. Maybe it's just a small winner. And then like now, you know, you can 
be pitching healthcare when the whole world is talking about healthcare. <laughs> Which, by the way, that's where you want to be. And so one of the first things you learn, um, you, I should say learn, duh, back when markets weren't so electronic, was that what made a trade profitable were other people. Right? And so we would literally pick up the phone to execute orders. We would pick up the phone to gauge interest. We'd pick up the phone to trick people, right? So if we if we wanted people to think we were selling because we really needed to buy and we needed them to exit, we would call up and pretend like we had a really big order. They would panic, they would sell, we would buy, we would laugh because then price would go up. But you learn that it takes other people. And too often as entrepreneurs, you know, we think in this vacuum, like, oh, I'm gonna start a business and I'm gonna make money. Uh, a good story, uh, I'll use his, his real name because he's probably never gonna see this, but a, a guy, uh, in our homeschool community named Mike wanted to start a coffee business in our little town. Bedroom community, 34,000 people. Everybody drove from there up to Metro Phoenix to go to work. He wanted to start a drive-in coffee joint. First question I asked him, Mike, how many cups of coffee do you need to sell to pay your rent? Yeah. He had no idea. Well, it's like just that basic information is going to keep you from making a mistake. So again, it's the, the keys to unlocking how do you become more lucky? It's not as easy as just people say, well, persistence and, um, you know, the, the harder I try, the luckier I am. We have these, these cliches because of the way I'm wired. I always wanted to know, like, what does that mean though? Because it, when I was coming up, it used to be a saying, you could have 30 years of experience or you could have one year of experience 30 times. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's not just persistence. It's about, you know, results, right? <laughs> True enough. Yeah, doing the same thing year year after year year after year for thirty years, it doesn't give you thirty years of experience. It's like right. thirty years doing what you did the year before. You got one year thirty times. Yeah, I know plenty of people like that. True enough, and uh, you know what? There, there's one field where I have I think twenty something, twenty two, twenty three years of experience, and for almost ten of those years, I did that too. Yeah, because there, and, and you know. Because there was a certain time where there was not the resources that we have today, where yep. where you can just look up things and know more things. So I either had to try myself and fail, or if I wasn't so open to failing, I would just do what I did yesterday and the day before, just <laughs> right. repeat it. Because like, right. what if I fail? And uh, I mean, that that's what a lot of entrepreneurs do and they sit in that comfort that comfort zone because let's do what we did yesterday that's right and uh, sometimes it's a huge missed opportunity other times i mean maybe that's what saves them i don't know <laughs> well but sometimes sometimes people get we'll call it lucky again so i'll give you another example so there's a guy in the trading world uh, his name is dan zanger and dan made a boatload of money in the run-up uh, to the dot-com bust. And the story was he was this contractor. I think he was a pool contractor. Uh, the legend was he had $30,000 and ran it up to like 20 million. Um, what he, now, this is to Dan's credit. This is by no means saying anything bad about Dan. When the market turned after, in 2001, he almost lost it all. And that's when Dan realized he had the right trading system for that particular market. Right. And yeah. so what the illusion that we get, we get handed this from our parents. We get handed this from old guys like me, uh, you know, that it's what we we just need to keep doing what we've been doing. Well, the, the reason why it, it's worked is because whatever they were doing fit the marketplace at that time. You know, so if you look at the Internet today, it's dramatically different from where it was even five years ago and radically different mm -hmm. from where it was in 05, where you know, I started that that large e-commerce company. Well, if we, if, if I, I don't even think I could still do it, but if I were still running my business the way I did it in 2005, like I said, I don't even, I don't even think it would be possible. Um, but in, in non-digital markets, it's so much more common because part of what comes with technology, and this, this kind of gets into a little bit rabbit trail with psychology, so I'll, I'll be very brief. But generally, people that are more interested in technology tend to be higher in what's called trait openness, right? They're new, they're open to newer experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also, uh, you know, more of somebody who votes, you know, in America, we call it liberal, right? So Democrat, 
uh, where somebody who's more conservative is less open to new experience. Well, if you look at what came out of World War II, it was a lot of conservative thinking, but it was a lot of older businesses that were really just kind of chugging along. You didn't have this earth-shattering technology that required them to change. Enter the internet, you know, mid-90s, but then it really picks up after 2000, and then boom, explodes into the mainstream in 05, 06, 07, 08. Well, now businesses are forced to change. And they're forced, forced to change at a fundamental level. So we draw some pretty easily corollaries, right? So if you're a business that repairs windshields, very basic business, you need a car, you need a physical product. Someone is always going to have to lay hands on that vehicle. I mean, and literally until we get unbreakable glass on our cars, there's going to be a human being that's going to be involved in it somewhere. Even if there's a robot, somebody's going to have to you know, push the button. You know what I mean? Yep. So in that fundamental way, the business isn't going to change. But if you want to grow as a glass business, oh my goodness, if you, if you haven't radically changed the way you get business, you're dead. So if you've got the guy who's walking around, and it's usually a guy, um, so we'll be inclusive here, or the gal that's walking around, say a, a car wash, or you know, someplace where you know a car is going to be parked stationary long enough so you can look at the windshield Walmart, and engage. Walmart right. parking lot. But... So if you're still selling that way, you're going to be dead. Not, not because it doesn't work, but because some chucklehead like me is going to get on Instagram and going to get on Twitter and going to get on Facebook and inundate the person who, by the way, is sitting, you know, in the parking lot doing this. You know, they're not like they used to be just kind of twirling their thumbs and looking around, pumping their gas. They're on their device. And if you yeah. pair that with the fact that I can now geolocate you and I know you're at a gas station and I pop that ad and say, hey, is your windshield broken? Maybe you'd like to get it fixed. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm being purely theoretical there. Yeah. With exception, I mean, I can't geolocate somebody there. But if you're still competing with the dude walking around who I, you know, I don't know, and if I'm, you know, if I'm not quite clear if that person's looking at my windshield or you know, they're looking at me because they want to jump me, which by the way happened to me. I'm talking out of experience again. <laughs> had some guys like, he was looking at me like this and I'm thinking, okay, what's this guy's problem? So I, I did like the rational self-defense thing kind of do. I moved to see what he would do. So I moved to another place in the guest. I didn't see him, got out and he comes walking up like this again. And so I carry a gun. And so I very loudly, you know, said, do not approach me. Well, the guy was trying to fix my windshield. <laughs> oh. It's like a, Afterwards, I thought the guy just lost the sale forever. Like I'm never, even partially out of embarrassment, like I can't believe I was just about to get into an altercation with the guy. But, you know, like we were both at fault, right? So that's a broken sales process. That's evidence of a company that's selling the same way. One year of experience, 30 years. Yeah. But it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty easy to see, right? So the way, the way to avoid it, uh, unfortunately, if somebody listening to this is like really super conservative, it's going to be painful. You got to start trying new things. Start out with reading a book that you wouldn't normally read. Uh, you know, so it's nice, safe. You don't have to go anywhere and embarrass yourself. Get on Audible. If you can only listen to five minutes of it, listen to five minutes of it. Watch a TV program you normally wouldn't watch. Watch a TV program you hate and then enjoy talking about how much you hate it and then do it again. Uh, and so that very simple process will literally force your brain to start looking for more experience. And so one of the things, you know, we call it getting into a rut, but it's really very simple. Our brains are pattern seeking machines and they look for patterns that we decide we want. You want a new car, all of a sudden you see it everywhere. You know, you buy a new phone, all of a sudden everybody's got the phone. So if if you're looking in the same, or sorry, if you're looking for the same thing in different places, you're going to find the same thing. So just look in the different places, but consciously set out to look for something new. Consciously set out to look at a totally unrelated business and think, okay, how can I use that in what I'm doing? That's a technique I learned very early. Uh, I took it up in martial arts, uh, but you know, very early on, I made it a point to consciously take in information and then let my subconscious draw 
you know, different connections. And so I'm a synergizer where I can take something completely unrelated and build an entire system out of it, uh, you know, and mentally kind of see if it's going to work, but then go test it. That's like literally the process for innovation. If you wanted to, you know, make innovation into a process. You know, I, I tried something similar, myself, where I look at things that are not what I love. So it's not that I really hate them or whatever, but it's not what I love. But for two reasons. One, like you said, just so you can see both sides and, and, and not because just because you, you love Apple, you're going to see all the Apple stuff out there, right? Or, or if you bought a Volkswagen Beetle yellow, now you're going to see them everywhere. But at the same time, for the algorithms, because they know what you like and yes. they're going to give you what you like over and over and over. So you're going to be limited to that. So. Sometimes if you go look for the opposite of what you like, it's going to give you a higher variety. And I do that purposely sometimes so I can see different types of ads instead oh, of just yeah. all the all the entrepreneur selling course ads. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, because, of course, you know, they they know how to spend on the ad platform. So it's like yeah. you will you will not be wanting for whatever, you know, online course is coming next. But I also, actually, this occurred to me for. So for a parent, you know, and this doesn't have much to do with business, but um, I'm very protective of what my kids watch. Uh, yeah. I mean, to a fault. In fact, I to, to tell you how committed I am, before you, know, you had services that would do this for you, I would buy a DVD, rip the DVD, get it into Final Cut and edit it. But I wasn't content to just have bad edits. I mean, these... I like learned studio quality, like ripple deletes and learned audio uh, because I wanted to make sure that, you know, my kids could still could see the movies they wanted to see, but I could take out the parts that we as parents felt objections to. So with algorithms, um, if you really want to watch out for your kids before you give them the phone or the device, um, and this, of course, is assuming you can control what kind of account that they have, is curate the account, right? So deliberately watch specific videos because the algorithms can tell how long you've watched the video, but you also have to be mindful for how fast you're scrolling, right? And so when, when you've got a, a device and you're like, let's say you're scrolling this fast, the, the algorithm is going to assume a certain amount of interest. But if you're doing this, if you're flicking, yeah. then they assume, okay, you're not interested at all. So that it's gotten that sophisticated, yeah. you know, so and like things pauses. comment, right. So like, like things, you know, you can curate, your feed, you just have to be very deliberate about it. You got to comment, you know, it takes some activity. Otherwise, yeah, you're at the mercy. You're not just at the mercy of the computer. You're at the mercy of the marketers, which is, it's not where you want to be. Trust me. It's just not. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, I, I do something like that when it comes to um, YouTube on TV, because the kids like certain oh, yeah. series that are not available on kids, Netflix, and they watch it on YouTube. So if I go there and I perform a search, they are going to see some of my results in there. That's right. So I have to clear those out of there after, uh, so they don't get my. Uh, you know, do you have an old. You have an old device. Here's here's my solution for that because I found the same thing. It's not now. Fortunately, there was nothing like truly embarrassing. Um, I've got. I just got an old computer and logged out of all the accounts, and so you know what that will do is it it will give you basically the run of station kind of ads. And so that way the searches will stay, you know, very tight to whatever it is you're using that device for. So I've got a three-year-old daughter. Uh, she likes what she says. Let's watch the singers. Because um, again, I know, I know what ads are likely to pop up on certain videos. Uh, yeah. So like my kids grew up on, this was again, way before technology today, they watched Food Network. And so my kids grew up watching Out in Brown. Because mm -hmm. Food Network was one of the the only networks that didn't have ads that were inappropriate for, you know, six, seven, eight year old kids yeah. like Victoria's Secret and whatnot. Uh, at least in my opinion. So anyway, I just duplicated that, you know, with YouTube. So now, like, if you go onto that that computer, all you're going to see is like The Voice and uh, mm -hmm. America's Got Talent and things like that. So it's I call it my clean computer. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? It's so it's so funny because I have one computer right here in the office where I actually like to play some some music and i play it from directly from youtube without even looking at the screen oh yeah and it's the voice in america's got talent are the ones that are always shown to me the second i turn it on and i'm logged not logged in 
But the second I turn it on, that's what they recommend for me. Yep. Right. It's so all the four chair turns. And all. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> she loves those. Oh, my gosh. Yes. He got so, four. Uh, she's, she caught on pretty quick. Marcel, listen, before I let you go, tell me something. If somebody listening right now, they want to get started into business and they're like, okay, I know what I want, what I'm going to do. Now what? What's step number one after oh, they decide yeah. they want to get into it? This is... That's one of my favorite subjects. So unfortunately, it's the last. It's the last one. Um, a, a good friend of mine named Scott Channel uh, wrote a book on cold calling, and he totally stole my, my one of my catchphrases with "It's just math. Business is just math. Start with the math. Figure out. Let, well, let's take a page from direct response marketing. Use a thousand customers. There's no magic in it. It's just round numbers. Use a thousand. Use a hundred. Figure out if you had a thousand customers and based on you know a $20 sales price, you'd have $20,000 in. Figure out your ads. Okay, if you place an ad, how much is it going to cost? I like to use a dollar per click to start. We could argue until we go blind about what the real cost is. Again, it's just the math. Yeah. Start out with how many, guess how many clicks it's going to take and just run different numbers. I don't think anybody would be so naive to think they're going to, you know, a thousand clicks equals a thousand customers. Yeah. My suggestion is always use math that looks scary. So use 1% conversion rates, 2% conversion rates. Please do not start a business where you need to have 30% conversion rate at any step of the game because that's just a recipe for a disaster. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, again, it's, it's about using the algorithms to narrow down likelihood of failure. And so if you build this business where, say you've got step number one is a Facebook ad, step number two is a, you know, a, a one, page number one, And then page number two, where you're actually doing the conversion. So you've got a little bit of a funnel. Figure that out. If you get a thousand people here with 1% click, how many do you get here? 1% click, how many do you get here? Then you're going to look over here and say, holy crap, I need you know $50,000 to get a thousand customers. Well, if it's going to cost you 50 grand to get 20,000 in revenue, you're going to go broke on the surface, right? Now that may mean you need to dig in, but again, you've, you're now narrowing down possibility for failure. Now that's a, it's an important difference. And this is where I drive everyone nuts. People who've consulted with me over the years, uh, I've got kind of a standard disclaimer. I start with failure points, not with success points. And I learned that on the trading desk. You never start with how much money you can make. You start with how much you're willing to lose. In fact, as a professional trader, if you don't have a risk management system, you don't have a job. So it's always starting with how much are you willing to lose? What's the risk? What can go wrong? Where can this thing fail? Deal with that first. Because again, going back to, I use a lot of trading analogies. If you're going to buy, say, IBM stock, whether if you make money, it's got nothing to do with you being a genius. It has to do with other people coming in and buying IBM stock and IBM stock going up. It's like, what does that have to do with your bloody trading system? Like zero, right? So in business, it's the same way. If you understand where your risk is, if you understand where you can have some failure points, You reduce it down to a point where you're not going to go broke immediately. There's not going to be, you know, an easy to see catastrophic failure. Then you have a greater likelihood of success. Now, we'll give a warning. That also means you're going to discover really how bad your ideas are. Yes. <laughs> so that's the hard part is the, ne the next phase. And please don't underestimate that. We love our ideas, man. I mean, it's like we want to put them up on a wall. We like talking about them and, you know, because look, you get a dopamine release, right? It feels good to talk about what you think is a good idea. So don't underestimate your brain fighting for the life of that idea. You've really got to get into that logical spreadsheet frame of mind. And this is actually some of why uh, consultancy is a somewhat of a good idea. If you can't, like, if you just can't separate from your idea, get somebody else. Get somebody who you know can run a spreadsheet, have them, you know, run through a few questions. Uh, you can, you know, Google, how do I build a profitable funnel for crying out loud? Uh, in fact, I probably have some on my YouTube channel by now. Um, but do the math. That's where you have to start. Because by the time you actually get to like poor old Mike launching you know, your drive-through coffee joint, you know, relatively speaking, whether or not you're going to be successful. And here's kind of the punchline. You're going to know where you're off track. So often entrepreneurs bury themselves. It's not that the business buried them. 
It's that they they fell in love with their idea and they kept at it. I have seen yes. Th- there's a I'll, I'll use one from your 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 neck of the woods. Amaranth Trading in Canada. One trader, three billion dollars. One dude in a week. I've seen people with billions and billions of dollars just give it all away because they had an idea and they stuck with it. So the key to success is paradoxically found in finding failure first. Got it. And I love your idea of doing the math. And that's one of my favorite points. And there's a lot of people that do, uh, I don't know if that's the correct term, but biased math. Oh, Well, they look at, you know what? There's 7 billion people. I'm going to get 1%. Right, right. And I'm like, what do you mean you're going to get 1%? That's a guess. You're not going to get 1%. And if that 1% of 7 billion people, they're going to convert to my... Okay. That's wishful thinking, of course. How many people want your stuff? It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. Maceo, there's so much we could talk about. We could, And I uh, maybe we've got to do this again another day. Yeah, I'd uh, For now, uh, for the people that want to know more and if they want to connect with you and connect and hear more about Connexia, that is that healthcare system that we talked about earlier, Yep. where do they go? Where do they find you? Yeah, so Connexia.com, that's C-A-N-E-X-X-I-A. Uh, that's kind of my old SEO blood coming out. I wanted a, a name that was somewhat memorable, but also unique. Uh, and then if they want to connect with me personally, of course, MaseoJordan.com. Um, you know, I'm one of a few Maceo Jordans in the world. So if you throw that into Google, you're going to find me. I will warn you, you're also going to find one mugshot, which we can discuss on a private call. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you can get on my YouTube. I've got a series there called Behind the Paywall where, uh, you know, all the stuff that guys I know sell for $10,000, $15,000, I just give it away. Because, look, it's not everybody wants you to believe that the secret is in some course. It's really not. All of that, that's the commodity. The commodity is the information. The real juice, the stuff that's worth something is knowing how much of that stuff is actually worthwhile and how much of it's worthwhile for your specific situation. That's why I just give it away. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Maceo. Like I said, uh, we'll have to do this again. For everybody listening, pleasure. I'll have Maceo's links on the show notes so you guys can check him out. And again, big pleasure. Yeah, great. Thanks, Quinn. Appreciate it. Thank you.